I want to invite you to uh, turn to Luke 15, and that's where our text is found today. Following uh, where we've been in the lectionary text, we're in Luke 15. And we're going to get into the context of where this is here in just a moment, so I'm just going to go ahead and read the text, Luke 15. Now, all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him, this is Jesus, to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he, that's Jesus, told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. I tell you, there, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she had ten silver coins, loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When she's found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Lord, thank you for your word. I ask you, God, that you would communicate uh, just uh, Lord, the word that you would want to speak to us at the heart level this morning. We trust you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Back in the day, and this is back in the day, and I can, I'm not going to be able to give you the year, but uh, suffice to say, at that time, we only had four kids. And so we were... Uh, we were doing something that uh, we used to try to do. Now, after we had a couple more kids after this, uh, we ceased attempting to go grocery shopping together. But at that time, um, we used to try to go grocery shopping together. And so we round up the kids, and, boy, you know, at this point, I believe, again, we had four. So here's what that would mean is by that point, we had one who was, you know, five, six years old and then his younger brother. So they're, they're old enough to be able to kind of know what's going on as we head around the store. Denise was, I, I'm pretty sure we had Madison by this point, just an infant, so she's watching over the infant. And it was Dad's duty to watch over the toddler. Here's where we were. We're at the old Scott store on Decatur Road. You guys know what that, you know, big old horn of plenty over the top, right? That, that was, our, that was our, our jam, that's where we went. And Denise always found it kind of neat that she was shopping in the same building that her grandmother shopped in when, you know, years and years before. I mean, the building's been there for a long time. So uh, I had established by this point some sense of confidence about how to deal with a little toddler when going shopping. And I established this on the basis of my first two children, which was something, something like this. You know, hey, come on, let's go. And then if they didn't come, 
you know, after dad's like, let's go, um, you know, we're moving on, I would sometimes been known to say, see ya. And I would step into the next aisle. And, of course, separation anxiety would kick into gear. And, I mean, they're after me. They're finding me, right? Devin and Logan, great job, did it all the time. It was, I was pretty confident this was a pretty well-proven method until I had my third son, who is fiercely, to this day, fiercely independent. As a little tight. Now, this is the guy who struggled so much with asthma. He'd, he'd been in hospital several times, not alone, but the point is that it, it just, you know, having to struggle with that much stuff as a little trauma issues, even as a little guy, it had built some independence in him. So this is the guy who is a little bit more like what I would say my granddaughter is like right now at three years old. You would think they're ready to take over the world. Get out of my way. I've got this. And so, you know, I, I had been known to try out my tried and true method with him and say, see you later. And on more than one occasion, he'd say, see ya. In reply. Okay, so again, here's that. So we're shopping. Older boys are connecting the coupon with what's on the shelf. This is back in the day when we used to do triple coupons. And, you know, Denise had put it to the man. And I mean, we'd go on triple coupon day and we would have a ball. All right. So they're getting coupons, they're finding out what's next. I'm keeping an eye on the toddler, and you know, I'm watching. And so what I would often do by this point as well, as I learned, you know, I just would watch him even when he didn't know that he'd wandered off from us. Except for that time. When he wandered off and we didn't catch it. And at, you know, whatever the point was, at some point Denise and I turned to one another and said, Where's Holden? So, knowing the kind of character he was, I just kept myself calm and began to look. As a parent, you probably know what I'm talking about right now, okay? You look around the corner of the next aisle. Ah, it's okay. You look at the next aisle. Now the anxiety is beginning. And so, you're telling yourself, stay calm, even though your heart's beginning to beat a little bit faster. And so, I'm walking first slowly, then more quickly, all the way down to cover all the aisles on the back end of the store, I'm glancing. Now I'm walking faster. I'm glancing. I'm glancing. I'm noticing, and I'm not seeing my son. I'm not seeing him. I'm not seeing him. I go to the front of the store. I go through the whole same routine, walk all the aisles from one end all the way to the other. No sign of my son. I turn tail, head back toward the registers. I'm looking, and I'm glancing. I'm noticing my peripheral vision. By this point, I've decided... I'm heading to the customer service counter in humility and saying I need help. And I'm trying to catch eye contact with the person at the customer service counter when out of my peripheral vision somewhere down here, there's something that catches my eye. And I glance down, and there is my son standing in front of me indignantly saying, where did you go? I'm not making this up. And I said, oh, come here. You know, he's like, okay, fine, you can pick me up. I mean, and if ever there was a moment in my life that to me is a descriptor of how often I have even behaved this way with God, that was it, right in front of me. My son, who didn't listen to what I had instructed him to do, wandered off, and his conclusion is, 
dad went missing. It wasn't him, heaven forbid, not me. And, and oddly enough as well, um, you know, as he's confronting me about my lostness, mom and dad, from the moment that he went missing, to our knowledge, were searching for him. And from the moment that we noticed that he was missing from our presence, what a commentary on how often we refer, watch this, to the absence of God. Where is he? Let's feel like God's absent. The God that Jesus describes in Luke 15 is not waiting for us to find him, but is searching from the moment that we become missing from his presence. The good news from our gospel today is this, that the incre- this incredible revelation that lost and found, and that's the title that I've given the message this morning, is lost and found, is not the result of man's search for God. Are you hearing me? And, and, and all of heaven is rejoicing at God's recovery of what was lost. And watch this, even more interesting, Jesus calls that repentance. The place where the lost are found and their presence is restored. There's some really, really powerful points in the message this morning. You see, oftentimes we, we take a look at this text and we, you know, all of heaven rejoices over the sinner who repents, but Take a moment to slow down and read the text. And there's some really fascinating truth that's there. Now, before, because there's this, this incredible moment, because in these parables, and right by, as Jesus is telling these parables, the religious establishment is revealing that their starting place is where we often are. Their starting place is man's sin and failure as the definition of people. And Jesus, you know, here he is. This man receives sinners and he eats with them. And Jesus is remarkably silent about the topic of sin and failure. His starting point is grace. He's revealing the character of God as a God who searches for the one who comes up missing. So let's take a look at the, the text to capture this. You know, I, I, I was pondering this text and meditating on it, and part of what I do oftentimes, I'll look at the text, and then I'm, it, here's the truth. I lay awake and think about it during the night, and, you know, there's thoughts that come to me. And, and here, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, now, wait a minute. I, I know Jesus hasn't moved. Luke 14, he went to the home of a religious leader, to have a Sabbath meal. So we can read Luke 14, 15, 16, and it looks like Jesus just started talking and wouldn't quit talking. You know, he's that, that guest that you have over that can't stop talking about themselves. And you're kind of like 
you know, if you read Luke 14 and 15 and you're like, okay, where is he? He said, all he did was talk. But wait a minute. As I'm pondering this, I'm like, uh, you know, I'm wondering if I'm missing something. You see, a Sabbath meal, see, for us, we think, come on over for dinner. We'll conversate. We'll share a little bit. But, you know, it's probably an hour, maybe an hour and a half if we're telling stories. Maybe a little longer. And you have all these different discourses that are occurring in 14 and 15. Like, what in the world? Well, that's because a Sabbath meal was actually more like a Sabbath feast. Remember, they're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, right? So they have to get all this food prepared for the next 24 hours. So what are they doing for the next 24 hours? The family comes on over. The neighbors, their friends, hey, come on over. We're having Sabbath at our house this week. And so there's this gathering of a group of individuals, not just one family. And they're not just sharing one meal, but many meals together. And what are they doing? Well, they're, they're having conversation. They're praying. They're singing. They're rehearsing the scriptures today. Really, the best picture for us, at least for me, of what a Sabbath or a Shabbat would look like, it would be kind of like Thanksgiving. For me, it's not a meal because when our family comes together for Thanksgiving, it starts Wednesday night and it ends like Friday evening. And it goes on. And on. And we're telling stories. We're playing games. We're being together. We're sharing several meals. We're eating some leftovers together. We're catching up. Now you have a picture of Shabbat. We're going to go to their house this week. Great. We're going to be there for at least 24 hours. Sharing life together. So they're singing. They're praying. They're eating. And, and, and food, interestingly... In Jesus' day, well, let's see. The Scripture says something like this. Your word is like, is like a, a honeycomb. It's like food. The Scripture actually says that, right? So food is the place by which they would participate with the Scripture. And so as they shared a meal, they, were, they saw that as a time that they were not just sharing together, but especially on the Sabbath, that they're sharing that with God. When they would have the Passover meal, they would leave one plate set for Elijah the prophet. And so there's this deep sense and awareness of the presence of God in their midst. And so what they're sharing is God's law. So they're eating food, but they're also, in a sense, knowing that this is a connection to the laws of God and to the people of God together. So food's the way they talk about God's law. So every good, pious Jew then would also know that there was something that was really important about how we went about that because at a Shabbat gathering, gathering your friends, your family, religious leaders. Now then there's that uncle, you know, your crazy uncle who never goes to church, and he says those weird things, you're not going to set him with the pastor. Right? Come on. You know what I'm saying? 
So anybody, unless you're just really trying to be obnoxious, I've had that happen to me. Why don't you sit with him, pastor, and fix him? Like, what do you, I, my, I, do I have Holy Spirit on my head? No. So here's what would happen in a, in a Jewish gathering is it actually, they're, they're, they had a code to this. And especially among religious leaders, part of this code was the sense of you're going to set with those of like affinity, meaning if your religious leader is very pious, you're going to set with other pious individuals because you're in. And you're certainly not going to fellowship with those who are sinners because they're out. And so in a sense, they really had kind of a seating arrangement and a hierarchy of by that seating arrangement, they communicated, they're the ones that are in, and they're the ones that are kind of out. They're not just the crazy uncle and the goofy cousin. They're just out. Tax collectors. Women. No, they don't get invited. And sinful women. No, 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 no. And remember, we, we looked at this last week that some rabbis taught that Women actually had different souls than men. And so here you are. You're sharing food, talking about the law of God, and you've got this unwritten code of inclusion and exclusion. And, and wait a minute. Jesus is, oh, yeah, remember he said things like, you know, as we share this meal, this is this, this food. This is, this is actually my body. This is actually my blood. So you get that connection, Right. So in that system, Jesus gets up and he allows sinners to eat with him. And even more than that, sinful women. Now, do you get the context? It's a screaming proclamation. Jesus, what in the world? We're at a Shabbat festival and you're... We're talking about the law of God. Okay, maybe do this on some other day. Maybe, but not today. And you've been invited to the leader of the Pharisees, and here, it's here you choose to go the other side of the room and sit with sinners and eat with them. Talk about confronting the systems of the day. Because, again, for the religious establishment, the starting point of who was in and who was out were those who clearly had sinned the tax collector, the prostitute. You've heard me say this. Beloved, let's get this drilled in our, in our heart. If our gospel begins with sin, we've already missed it. If it begins with man's failure in sin and we be, make the gospel into a legal, you know, a legal diagnosis of a problem rather than a God who's come to restore and to make whole, but wait, those are the words of Jesus. I've come to seek and save that which was lost. What was lost? Man in the garden in fellowship and connection and belonging with God. Light, life, order, and beauty. That's what was lost. In the gospel, God proclaims resurrection, restoration. So here we have these parables. That if we take them seriously, for Jesus, the defining characteristic of sin is not behavior, but it has to do with presence. 
being lost. In fact, I, I want to repeat what's glaring in this text, that Jesus talks about repentance, and yet the topic of the parable is about God. The shepherd searching and finding, and the sheep, what did he do? And we're the sheep, right? I'm the good shepherd, Jesus said in John 10. My sheep hear my voice, so he's doing another shepherd illustration for people who would get that picture. The Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23. So these were easy connections for them to make. So he's not giving some oddball, okay, so I'm the sheep. When did that sheep turn around and go find the shepherd? And yet Jesus talks about repentance. So I want us not to miss this. The awareness of the sheep's lostness is not the point or the topic, but the shepherd's search. And the shepherd's search began and is motivated by this issue of the lack of presence. And when he finds the sheep, again, I'm just, I just I'm pointing to what's obvious and in the text. He finds the sheep. He rejoices. Puts this little guy on his shoulders. Not blaming, not punishing, not condemning. Look what I found. The lost sheep is the benefactor of the pursuit of the shepherd and the searching shepherd. The lost sheep is the benefactor not because of how well he confessed his wrongdoing, but of the God who came in pursuit of him. The lost coin didn't find the owner. The owner found the coin. See, the kind of repentance that Jesus described is distinctively centered around a couple of thoughts. And this is really what I want to land us on out of this text. And I, I pray that it will just settle in your head and in, then into your heart, okay? One is this, presence, and the other one is belonging. The sheep didn't repent from their lostness. The shepherd goes and finds them. Rejoice with me. I found what was lost. So part of what Jesus reveals is that repentance that causes heaven to celebrate is centered on that presence is restored, and that it's about belonging. And interestingly, sin wasn't even the discussion. Now, I'm not belittling sin. Sin is awful. It decreates. It destroys. But repentance in its rightful place is about presence and belonging. Maybe this has a little bit more to do with why Paul uses this word uh, Luke records Paul saying this in Acts 20.20 20, when he said, and we, we were faithful to declare the gospel in the temple courts and from house to house, verse 21, of a repentance unto God and faith in Christ Jesus. I think it's really not a mistake that Luke worded it that way. Not a repentance from, but a repentance to, to towards God and faith in Christ Jesus. In the case of the sheep, in the case of the coin, their repentance was the result of being found. 
and to be clear again, the search was because of their lack of presence. But watch this. Their belonging was never in question. That coin belongs to me. That sheep belongs to me. So, beloved, can I just give us a couple of two or three conclusions about this? Your presence, your presence. See, I've heard these verses rehearsed. God's really happy that you stopped making bad choices. That's true. You know why? Because it pains him like it pains you when your own kids make painful choices. But what causes rejoicing in heaven is your presence. This fellow welcomes sinners. Now, that wasn't an observation. That was an accusation. Because he's not recognizing those who are in and those who are out. Jesus' point was not about who was in or out, but the one who risks everything for the lost sheep. Jesus is inviting us all to hear a different question, a more crucial question. So important. Not so much about what you believe about the shepherd, but what God believes about you and about me. You believe in God? No, I don't really think so. That's okay. But I know what he believes about you. The shepherd goes and searches. See, truth be told, we have all been lost in our head, in our heart, in our life, in our choices, whatever. But Jesus reveals this profound reality about the presence, about the grace of God that is centered on presence and belonging. Um, I know I've already kind of let, let me just let me just rehearse a couple things. First, two, those I want to I want to touch on those words again as I think about them. Okay, so this word presence. If I think about it, Jesus is revealing that for God, the starting point isn't blaming or condemning or shaming, but that He's recognizing something has come up missing, and the cause of the lostness isn't even in the discussion but the pursuit of the shepherd to find that which is lost. And the issue of presence being recovered and reclaimed. Beloved, there are, again, a lot of ways that we can get our, our own hearts and our heads lost in fear and anxiety, but the shepherd who's searching, the woman who's sweeping, it's in pursuit of presence. So can I proclaim this in the name of Jesus over you? Please hear this. These, these aren't just, this isn't just good psychological psychobabble. This is the truth. Without you, something is missing. This is a correct theological conclusion from this parable. Without you, well, I feel like, you know, out of my Calvinist background, we often would say these things, you know, God can do it without you. Got that hammered in my head. Saw myself as a little worm, as a nothing, a wretch. 
And yet Jesus seems to be persistently wanting to invite us to see something that we have a father who says, without you, something's missing because my image is on you. We proclaim this in the name of Jesus over every individual that we meet and that we see. Oh, God, give me eyes to see the image of you. There's a rabbinic teacher by the name of uh, Rabbi Zusia from the 18th century. He's a Hasidic Jew, and he said this. In the coming world, they will not ask me, why were you not Moses? They will ask me, why were you not Zusha? Beloved, without you, something is missing. God cares so much about your presence. He's going to come in pursuit. That's That is the gospel. That is the God who came and took on flesh. Presence. Belonging. Very similar. You got this searching, sweeping pictures that are going on in Luke 15 because what was no longer present had belonged to its rightful owner. And Jesus proclaims this reality of God's character that is constantly in pursuit. And he's saying to every man, woman, boy, and girl, you belong to me. So watch this. Rejoice with me. Why? Why is all that rejoicing going on in heaven? God's declaring its value to him. Watch. Let's not miss an obvious point. Jesus didn't quantify the sheep like they're the head sheep. Without that sheep, the whole group's going to be lost. It's just one that came up missing. We don't even know. All we hear is a, it's a silver coin. We don't know the quantity of it or whatever. The point is the, 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 its value is the fact that it belonged to its owner. Therefore, they're priceless. So the kind of God that Jesus reveals is the one who's willing to risk everything for the one without taking anything away from the others because they're priceless. They're priceless. They're priceless and they belong. That is a word for us in our disposable society, right? We buy TVs that, oops, broke. Now I have to pay to get rid of it. Okay, I'll do that. That's fine. I don't want it to be in the landfill. Great. But my point is, is, it's not just diapers and TVs. It's relationships that are disposable. You know, something breaks, you buy it on Amazon. It'll be here tomorrow. The shepherd proclaims it's priceless and it belongs. Um, the last thing I want to say here is about this word repentance. I would submit that the repentance that brings rejoicing in heaven is the repentance that's captured by the searching and finding God revealed in Christ. So, this is a posture of life and joy, a repentance towards the grace of God 
in Christ, revealed in Christ, that is searching and finding and rejoicing. So I, I want to read, read something uh, another pastor wrote about this. He said that searching, finding, and rejoicing are not three different actions or three different moments in time, but manifestations of the grace of God, the ongoing presence of God in Christ in each of our lives. Depending on the circumstances of our lives, we experience that grace differently. Searching, finding, rejoicing, ultimately it means there's a place set for us at the table. We matter. We're desired and important to God. So this fellow who welcomes sinners and eats with them and is constantly searching and finding us and rejoicing over our presence at the table, that, Jesus says, is what repentance looks like. Unto God. So our invitation this morning, to look up and see the outstretched arms of the one who's been looking all over the store to find you. Because you belong. The good news of the gospel today is the incredible revelation that lost and found is not the result of man's search, but God's. And all of heaven rejoices in his recovery of what was lost. Jesus calls this repentance, the place where the lost are found and their presence is restored and creation is made whole. Lord God, we come even here this morning, asking you to fill us with a fresh imagination again. What does that look like? How is that manifested in our lives? To proclaim your kingdom. To hear the angels of heaven rejoicing. What was lost has been found. I want to invite you, if you would, let's stand um, and let's pray this prayer together. And then we're going to come to the table. And again, interestingly, as we've been looking at this text of Jesus sharing in a meal, that we proclaim the life and the death of Christ is this profound mystery. It really, really is. We're proclaiming another Word at work in our life and in our bodies. So let's pray this prayer together. Persistently forgiving God, we are a stubborn people who try your patience. Yet, instead of giving up, up for lost, you seek us out until we return to you. Bring us back from our wanderings. Bend our pride and create in us pure and faithful hearts which rejoice in your forgiveness made known through Christ Jesus. Amen.